Amen. You can have a seat. Maybe you've been following along in our series that we're in the middle of right now called 50 Days with Jesus. If not, we've been walking through the Gospel of John and we've been doing it with a purpose. The whole idea is to get to know who God is more deeply by studying the story of Jesus because it's in Jesus that God reveals who He is most clearly. Now, as we come to the text that we've been looking at this week, if you've been reading along in the reading guide and that I want to look at today, we see that there's a turn made in the Gospel of John, and it's a final turn. Up until this point, we see Jesus moving back and forth, north to south, north into Galilee where he grew up, and then south to Judea and Jerusalem for different festivals of the Jews. At this time in the story, Jesus makes his final trek south for the final Passover feast. And we know that at the end of this feast, Jesus is going to be on the cross. Now, so he's, he's made that turn, set himself toward the cross. Now, as we think about that, you know, it's easy for us to, to consider God's plan here in Jesus and begin to think it feels a little bit like and God had set everything in motion in creation. Everything was the way it should be. And then we messed it up with our sin. And God had to figure out a solution. Like he had to call an audible in the middle of history and solve the problem that had been created by us. Sort of God's backup plan. But the truth is, God knew from the beginning exactly what would happen, right? I mean, nothing surprises God. He always sees it coming. And even as he was creating, and we know that the Son was present with the Father in creation, we read that at the beginning of this series in John chapter 1, that God knew what would be required of him, of the Son, on the cross. This was God's plan all along because he loves us that much. Okay. So as we make this turn, we'll see that this is all done with purpose. But as we think about God's plan, you know, one of the things that we need to consider as Christians is, okay, what does this story, what does it mean for me? Now, we don't want to get so caught up on that that we forget that the story is about all of humanity and all of creation, but it has this very personal element to it as well. So what does this story of Jesus going to the cross have to do with me 20 centuries later? How does it speak to an American living in 21st century culture when Jesus died in around 33 AD or 30 AD, somewhere in there, as a Jew in the first century? How does this story translate to now? Well, I think the gospel writers and other writers in the New Testament deal with that question over and over again. And we see it at work in the passage that I want to get to in a few minutes that we find in John chapter 12. Now, one of the things that's at work in this story is the passage we're going to look at often gets overlooked because of what happens just before it. Now, the, the passage that takes place there, the story that takes place at the beginning of John chapter 12, man, we, we celebrate it with its own day. Next Sunday for many churches is going to be Palm Sunday, and it's all about that story. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the last time, this last week that he goes into the city. And it's amazing how it happens, right? He's on the back of this colt, and, and people take palm branches as they would for a king, and they lay them on the road so, so even the animal doesn't have to touch the ground that's carrying Jesus. It is as if they are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as a hero. 
as one who is going to throw off Roman oppression. Everyone is excited because they see Jesus as king and he's going to bring them the victory that they want. Now, Jesus is going to bring a victory, but it's not the one that they expect. And in fact, the one that they welcomed as a king on Sunday, they would be calling for his death on Friday because in many ways they disappointed him. He disappointed them. He wasn't the king that they wanted him to be. So what is it that Jesus is trying to do here? Well, we see a little glimpse of that in the next story. And even though everybody loves a parade and the power and the anticipation and the hope that the triumphal entry brings, this next story actually tells us more about who Jesus is and what he wanted to accomplish than the triumphal entry does. So we pick up right at the end of this first story in John chapter 12, verse 19, as the Pharisees are all frustrated because they've been opposing Jesus and it doesn't seem to be working. So the, we read this. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. It's not working. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, they're preparing for the Passover feast. So Jews from all over the Roman Empire would have been converging on Jerusalem to celebrate this most holy part of the annual calendar of festivals. And they're seeing that when these people coming from all over the world are excited about Jesus, and this is frustrating and disappointing to them. Now, as we go to the next story, we do find out that well, Jesus is beginning to attract people in ways that lots of people would not have expected because two people, or several people, we don't know exactly how many, come to Jesus and, and they want to just, they want to meet him. Now, what John tells us is that they are Greeks and they just say, we want to see Jesus. Now, the word Greeks can mean a couple different things in the New Testament. Sometimes it's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews, okay? Because Jews spoke Aramaic, most everybody else in the Roman Empire knew Greek, okay? Now, Latin would come into favor later on, but even in what we call Italy, Greek was still spoken. So Greeks were not just people from Greece, but basically anybody who's a non-Jew. But it was also used to describe Jews who sort of weren't from around here, right? They didn't grow up in what we would call Palestine or Israel and they didn't speak this Aramaic language, sort of a derivative of Hebrew. So they were Greek-speaking Jews. Now, what's going on here? Well, the answer is we don't really know. What we do know is that there are people, maybe Jews, maybe Gentiles, coming into Jerusalem for this festival. And who do they want to see? Jesus. Jesus. Just like the Pharisees are saying, man, the whole world is following him. And here we have some Greeks who want to see Jesus. Now, who do they go to? They went to, to one of Jesus' disciples, and his name is Philip. Why Philip? Well, there's only two disciples who have Greek names. Everyone else has good Jewish names like Judas and Simon. But Philip has a Greek name, and it says that he's from Bethsaida, which was sort of on the border between a Jewish area and a Gentile area. So maybe his family has people who are Jews and Gentiles, and even though he's a Jew, he gets a Greek name. It makes sense that these Greeks go to somebody who speaks their language, and they say, we want to see Jesus. Philip doesn't know exactly what to do. He went to the only other disciple who had a Greek name, Andrew, also from Bethsaida. And he says they want to see Jesus. 
Now, Philip and Andrew take these Greeks to Jesus, and then John seems to forget to tell us what happens. Because he never says that they actually met Jesus, that they came in contact with Jesus. It just gives us Jesus' reply to Philip and Andrew. Maybe this is happening in the middle of this whole triumphal entry. We're not told, or maybe it's a a few hours later. What we do know, it's on the heels of that. And here Jesus, Jesus speaks, but we don't really get the impression he's speaking to these Greeks who want to see him. But here's what he says. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, there's a whole lot going on in those two verses because the first thing that Jesus says is the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Seven times in John's gospel, John mentions Jesus' hour. Now, if you've been following along, you've noticed that the number seven keeps coming up, right? The number of completion. We talked about seven times Jesus says something like, I am the, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. We've heard Jesus say that seven times. Seven times we've seen Jesus perform a sign. Begins with water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Finishes with Lazarus being raised from the dead. Seven signs. Seven times, again, no accident, that Jesus talks about his hour. The first three times, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. Here. The middle time that the word hour is used in the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour is used, we hear Jesus saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is as if the presence of these Greeks who have come to meet him have signaled that things have changed and that God has given a sign that it's time for his hour to come for him to be glorified. Now, when when most people heard that Jesus was saying it's time to be glorified, they're thinking triumphal entry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All that happened on that day, being treated as a king, that all seems like his hour is present right then, right there. And Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. What is it about? Well, it's about being like a seed. And you know, if a seed never touches the ground, never comes in contact with the soil, it won't germinate. And it won't grow a stem or roots or leaves, and it certainly won't bear fruit. Jesus says, I'm like that. The only way that this is really going to make a difference, the only way that God is going to be glorified, that I will be glorified, is if I go to ground if I die. So God's glory is not going to look like a conquering king coming into Jerusalem, sort of announcing that the kingdom of God has come. It's going to be, it's going to be on the cross. It's going to be in death just a few days after Jesus said this. The kingdom of God would be ushered in in an entirely different way than even the disciples expected it, and certainly more than the crowd expected. So Jesus is planning something that is totally different from what everyone thinks 
is going to come. It's counterintuitive. It is not what we expect. It's not what they expect. A coming king comes into Jerusalem like Jesus did and then announces, let's raise up an army and throw off the Roman oppression. It's not what Jesus did. He says this in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is not saying we should hate this life. His point is, what do you love the most? What do you love the most? Do you love what you can get in this life? Do you love what you can achieve in this life? Do you love where people notice who you are and what you've done? Or is there something more? Because you see, Jesus is our example for understanding what really is important. Because it wasn't coming in and being hailed as a hero. For Jesus, what mattered was his willingness to give everything, including his life, on the cross. To die for the people that he loved, us. His willingness to give himself is how we learn who he is and what matters for our lives as well. We skip down to verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We'll get to verse 28 in just a second. But Jesus is saying, when I hear that, so that statement, it reminds me of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go through what's about to happen. Jesus says here he's troubled by what he knows he's going to face. And yet, he says, I can't, I can't say let's don't do it. I can't say I don't want this to happen. This is the reason I'm here. Going to the cross is the reason that I came. And so he's prepared to do it. Lots of us have been through a time where there was something in our future, maybe the very near future, that that we really didn't want to have to go through, that we didn't want to do, and yet we knew it was absolutely necessary. And that's where Jesus is in this moment. He's troubled. He knows it's going, it's going to be a painful, a, a, a miserable, a humiliating experience to go to the cross and to bear my sin and yours. And yet, he says, it's for this very reason that I'm here. And so he's willing to do it. And then verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then God did. Because a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Certainly God's name has been glorified before this point in Scripture. We see it in creation. We see it in when God leads his people out of Egypt into their own land, parts the Red Sea. We see God's name glorified in the Psalms and the prophets. And we certainly see it in Jesus' own ministry. But he says here his name is going to be glorified in a different way. It's about to happen, and it's going to happen on the cross. We skip down a little bit further to the end of this section, verse 36. He gives us some instruction. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Last week, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. God has ushered in this light so that we can understand what our lives and what we are all about, and certainly what he was all about. And so we begin to understand this life is not about 
getting accolades. It's not about gaining power or possessions. What it is, it's about giving ourselves. When it's necessary, giving the things that really matter. Sacrificing for other people. You see, I think the lesson here is that Jesus is God's way of showing us what matters most. Over and over, we've seen that Jesus is God's way of communicating to us the things that are most important in our lives. His love and His power and certainly what clearly matters the most. You see, what we sometimes think matters the most is what Jesus sort of turned His back on. We think the parade is the awesome thing. We think the hope and the anticipation of Jesus marching into Jerusalem is what really matters, but but what matters most is the Son of God on a cross giving Himself for our sins. It's not the way the world worked then, and it's not the way the world works now. That doesn't seem like the glory of God is present in humanity, and yet... Jesus is telling us that is the very way that God has shown who He is most clearly. That's the way we can see the glory of God is Jesus on the cross. And as much as it looked like a defeat, in reality, it was the greatest victory in the history of humanity, only to be surpassed three days later when He was raised from the dead, the resurrection. And we're going to look at those stories over the next couple weeks as we lead into Easter. But as we do, the point is, we are seeing, as Jesus prepares, the onset of the defeat of sin. We are seeing the the beginnings of eternal life as Jesus prepares in that week to die on the cross. And the message for us is, Jesus loved you and me so much that he was willing to give his very life for us so that we in turn could experience eternal life with him. What, What matters most? How does this story relate to us? It's about accepting that great gift of forgiveness and eternal life and recognizing that this life is sometimes about giving up what matters most to gain the thing that matters even more eternal life. Let's pray together. God, we get so distracted by many, many things in our lives, things that seem like they they matter a lot. In the moment, they may. God, help us to keep focused on what matters most, on Jesus, on recognizing that Your son on the cross changes the course of human history and helps us to see what human life is really all about, giving ourselves for others. God, help us to follow his example and to trust him for the things that matter most. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.